Billy, welcome. Uh, we're really excited to have you on this podcast and to have the opportunity to interview you and to learn from your experience and everything that's going on for you right now. Please just tell uh, for the people that don't already know you who you are, what you do, and, and where you are right now in terms of where you're working. Yeah, sure. Well, Gideon, thanks for having me on the pod. Uh, so I'm Billy Stein. I'm the Sales Strategy and Operations Manager at Service Titan, which is a vertical SaaS company in Los Angeles, service contractors. Uh, in my job, I mostly work with uh, resourcing our account executive team. We have about 30 AEs on our staff, and the work I do relies on uh, resourcing them for having the best go-to-market strategy to serve, adequately service our customers, performance analysis, coaching. Okay. Fantastic. So for me, who's learning more about you in real time, tell me a little bit about your vision for that role and how that connects to the vision for the company. What is the handshake there? What does that look like? Yeah, absolutely. So our, our company vision, our company was founded by uh, two gentlemen in the Los Angeles area that uh, built a software for their father's businesses to succeed on. And, you know, it, when you have that vision of family first, you can't help but put your best foot forward for the people that you work with. So everything that I do follows our vision of being customer first. And that, you know, uniquely ties itself to the way we message, what we do, the way we create our product feedback to even just the way we execute our sales process. Just for me, um, how do you validate that everything you're doing is customer first, you know, your perception versus their reality? What are the kind of the good lenses that you have in place to uh, to validate that that your your flow is customer first? Yeah, it's a great question, and obviously, you know the the age old tale with salespeople is well, if you're if you're run based on your own selfish number, how do you make it about the individual you're serving? So I think more so than anything, the goal of sales is when you bring on a customer, you don't just bring on a, a customer, right? You bring on a partner. And for SaaS companies, when the platform that you're selling is only part of the package, it's the service that you bring with it, uh, you build things to make sure that the people that do choose to partner with you are successful. And you can, cho you can choose to monitor success in a number of ways, whether it's you know annual contract value, whether it's you know how many additional seats do they buy down the road, do they buy uh, add-on products. But importantly for me, when we validate the way our behaviors are, if we message something works a certain way and you can see a quantifiable outcome based on it, how's the health of the customer based on their adoption of your platform? Is their business making money? Is, is life easier based on bringing in software? And if it is, then it shows in their business. And at ServiceSite, we have an incredible customer success wing that you know, is very proactive in keeping up and measuring the success of our customers. And I think when you measure sales, ultimately, you have to look at it as one stage of the customer journey. And, you know, it builds like a snowball. So everything you do up front leads to greater outcomes down the journey. I think that's the best way to validate. That's interesting. Um, and a good answer. I think the next question that, that leads me to is presumably in your role, there's a lot of data available to you, um, especially when you're looking at all of those snapshots throughout the journey. How do you 
you know, using your experience, how do you recognize the difference between good data and bad data when you're analyzing, um, projecting forward and, and making decisions? How do you, what, what's your lens for that? How do you process that? Yeah, it's a great question. It all kind of comes right back to that uh, debate between is sales customer first or is it company first? So when I look holistically at the sales organization, uh, all the data needs to point a straight line to revenue because ultimately that's the goal of a sales organization is to make the company money. So when we look at data, be it, you know, something as small as like how many, how long is the talk time on an average sales touch to, you know, did we explain what step 13 of implementation is, whatever it may be, it needs to be able to draw a straight line to revenue. And you can determine really quickly if you use that charter, what's an important metric versus what's a vanity metric. And I spend a lot of my time kind of deciphering what is a vanity metric versus what metrics do matter for our sellers. And I, I'm reading between the lines here and thinking that because you know your mindset is is around revenue and revenue operational revenue, that you're probably not just stopping at closed one and looking at the revenue gain there, you're probably looking beyond that to lifetime value, upsell, cross-sells, and, and all of the other uh, potentials. What, what does that look like? What does, what does revenue attribution look like beyond closed one? You are absolutely reading my mind on that. So if you want to take a, if you want to start at the beginning, you know, if, if you look at ACV average contract value, it all starts with your sales development representatives who are kind of the tip of the spear. And so when I look at, at bad data on an SDR, for example, I think call counts and email counts are terrible data. I, it, it does not matter to me how many dials an SDR makes because if you can't, if there's no activity associated with it that's nurturing a prospective customer and just somebody who might become a raving fanatic, then it doesn't matter. I look at, uh, you know, what, if, a, if a rep books 10 meetings, for example, book meetings are also a terrible example of data in our, in our business at Service Titan because if you're a business that has a, a more stringent ideal customer profile, you know, essentially if you're anything but a server at a restaurant who has a hungry customer come in and sit down, then, you know, the, the value an SDR brings and the, the relationship built between your company and your prospective partner starts right away with proper expectation setting. So it's not just that you book a lot of meetings, it's that you book a lot of meetings that bring into, this brings into the full what I think is some good data to measure is the qualifying rate. If you have 10 meetings sit, how many of them are qualified, not only as a real legitimate sellable opportunity, but how many of them made it to the meeting, how many of them are really interested and what kind of dollars associated can the company begin to forecast? Other great data for, for SDRs, and this is like my absolute favorite metric to base mark an SDR on, is something that I call a pipe seat close rate. So if you take a look at the total number of seats or licenses that an SDR generates into a pipeline, then what do the AEs actually close based on that number? So Gideon, if, if I'm your SDR and you're my AE and I qualify 500 seats that are sold and then you go in and you sell 250 of them, I have a 50% pipe seat close rate. 
That to me tells a lot about how those conversations go for a sales development representative setting expectations up front and being very transparent in what our goals are and what our vision is and what partnership may look like. Those usually also end up being the best AEs because they, they blast right through being an SDR and they figure out really quickly how to close at every level of the deal. Mm, that makes sense to me. And one thing that came out of this and, and your fresh approach actually, which is not necessarily the norm across the board, is the fact that SDRs who stick around for the longer term and invest in building um, a relationship with, with relevant leads We'll see that reward because um, you know the the SDR drop off rate for many companies is like twelve to fifteen months. There's a high turn turnover, but I imagine in your setup there would be a greater incentive for them to stick around because they have the opportunity then to to get the return on the upfront investment now, which you might water and and nourish uh, and get fourteen fifteen months down the road uh, on on top of everything else. That sounds like a real positive. Uh, but that's a great point too, because you talk about, you know, your attrition rate with sales development representatives. And I think that it's more of a, a company health metric as a SaaS company. How long are you able to keep SDRs in seat? And do you have a good method for when is, how much coaching does it take to move them up the levels? And do you promote at the appropriate time rather than letting them stick around too long? They get hungry for a junior AE role somewhere else and then they jump. Yeah, that's great. So I guess there's almost like a segmentation there between external facing metrics versus internal uh, in-house metrics as well. I didn't actually think about that, but it completely uh, completely makes sense. So now from what you said, it makes me uh, wonder, how are you bringing the various line of business stakeholders into this this customer-centric journey with all of these different stages, perhaps different tools, different KPIs, probably, of course, and maybe even different budgets. How do you, uh, you know, what's your methodology for, for getting like different line of businesses to be singing from the same song sheet and perhaps even uh, restructuring their priorities? What's your, what's your take on that? Yeah, so that brings me to the next, the next point. So with tools, if you start to look down the customer journey as it does hand off to an account executive, you know, CMRR close rates are a great metric to figure out who can close a lot of business, but they're not the most valuable lesson for learning what an AE can do. And if you do take a customer first approach, then great data for an account executive. And a lot of the data that we coach to is around churn rate because you can make the company $20,000 in the month of May, and I might make the company $15,000 in the month of May. But if you don't set those proper expectations downstream and you don't equip your customer for what the next stage of the journey is, then if you have any drop off, say you lose 5K in it, RACV is exactly the same. So churn rate is a great metric to coach AEs on and it. You can tell based on the behaviors within your tool stack, especially for us, like we monitor account executive calls. You can tell where almost to a point in a sales cycle where messaging is missed from the, the seller to the buyer, which you can then project what kind of behaviors are going to happen downstream. But with the tool stacks, that's an, that's an interesting question because you even brought it down to budget. And our main tool that we drive our company off of is Salesforce. 
which CRM. Yep. And you know, that is universal across the customer journey all the way from, you know, the marketing team and the sales development team down to the customer success team. But we probably only use like 5% of Salesforce at the end of the day, you know, it's a massive tool that is ever changing. Uh, one of my favorite tools that we use to align everything is our outreach tool called sales law. Yep. I know them. You familiar with that? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, sales law, uh, aside from the fact that I'm originally from Atlanta, Georgia, and they're like the heroes of the Atlanta tech community, uh, sales law, we can create uniform messaging right from the get go, from the very first time we try to engage and nurture a prospective partner all the way up to when they do complete their contract and they start moving into the process of onboarding our platform. And I mean, your tool set has to align completely to your overall vision, which I think in hyper growth is critical because if your long-term vision does not drive every one of your behaviors along the way, then you start spending recklessly on tools. You don't connect everything the right way. And you get this very ugly, just kind of jumbled up customer journey that at the end of the day puts your company revenue in jeopardy. I imagine if it's, if it's not aligned with that vision, therefore you'll probably measure the wrong things along the way, right? If you don't have the endpoint in mind, you're going to be defocused or whatever, looking in the other direction, measuring the wrong stuff, and then have a huge data hygiene test to do a year or two down the road, which you already know is my pet peeve. Uh, I, uh, I hate those. <laughs> Definitely like to think, think forward and bring people onto the same song sheet. Um, so that, that's all super uh, interesting. So kind of bringing it right now to the, to the absolute present, we're in the middle of COVID-19, which is challenging for many companies. Uh, it's new. There isn't a playbook as far as I know, because if there is, nobody's passed it to me. Yeah. For, uh, for, <laughs> for what we're all supposed to do in these kind of situations, but we're all learning quickly. And I think almost the smaller we are as a company in general, the easier it is to be agile sometimes. It's harder to turn a big boat around. Um, how are you seeing the demands of this situation play out? How are you seeing, for example, the need to be agile with margin approvals and some of the basic basic challenges in, in the operational role that you'll need to facilitate? What does that look like for you? Yeah, absolutely. And let me start by saying that uh, right before I jumped on the pod with you, I finally got my results for my COVID-19 test. They opened up free testing in Los Angeles and I tested negatives. I know my mother is definitely going to listen to this at some point, so it's all good. Mom. <laughs> Congratulations. Um, thank you very much. Uh, so coming back to it. So it's an interesting, it, it, it's funny because certain businesses are like completely busting down the law of diminishing marginal agility. I think about like here in, in Los Angeles, streaming services are everything. And I mean, on my, on my TV, I have five of them that are up and it's like, you can't have enough of them, but for, uh, uh, you know, a business, uh, business facing platform, you do have to consider where the margin needs to be big and where you need to lean it out a bit. And, you know, we always think when we're teaching sellers, uh, think in terms of the lowest common denominator and 
it all comes back to the vision, right? So a service Titan, our business was made to be a business operating platform for service contractors. So with that in mind, I think when I think about like, what would I do if a sales leader said to me, like, how should we be prioritizing our sales? You need to prioritize, you know, your core, uh, your core offering that you have, whether it's a product or a service and focus on selling that. Companies that have a lot of add-on products, for example, if you can sell your core platform in, not only can you manage, those are generally the most expensive offerings that companies provide. That's where you can at least sort of have a healthy line of sight around what margins are going to look like during COVID because we don't know how long this thing is going to go for. And with add-on products, if you have a good framework that's built in, if you're willing to be agile on some of your smaller items, then build a framework and you can get creative later with, you know, free trials or extended contracts. I think uh, here in the States, we use the term uh, offering the kitchen sink. If you're trying to sell your core and then push down a prospective customer's face, every single thing you offer all at once, I think it ends up becoming tone deaf. And then what, what that can do is it devalues your core and it ends up devaluing the customer's need for what you're doing. Absolutely. I imagine that situation, it's about defining the pain and then redefining the pain. Yeah. And if you're a fit for the pain, then you've sold the value. And if you haven't done that, then it doesn't matter how many add-ons you have in the world. Exactly. Uh, they will not feel understood. Uh, and not compelled <laughs> to uh, to move forward. So it's it's interesting that you say that. I imagine that you sit on a lot of really important data that informs decision making, and I imagine that you know a lot of your job is almost being a translator of data into priorities and actionable next steps. And I imagine that there's a symbi symbiosis whereby. That, you know the executive leader of the company has the company vision and then you from your perspective have the vision of what optimal revenue performance might look like now and going forward over the next uh, months and quarters how do you bring those leaders into your vision or viewpoint and what is the handshake between you and them what does that look like yeah that's an interesting question so i'm going to use a real example of this uh we just uh over the last eight months myself along with um some key leaders we released a new vertical just last month at service titan and you know our legacy vertical is about selling software that residential contractors can run so uh if you're in your home think about like your plumber or the guy who's going to come and fix your air conditioner your garage door well we decided to expand that to commercial uh, so then think about being in the deal hub offices and the air conditioner goes out, the individual that comes there. Well, unfortunately, in the middle of this, you know, it's always a, when you roll out a new offering and you go to a completely new market, there's months and years of planning that go into it. And then right at the time we were about to go live, which was April 1st, we were in the middle of COVID-19. So businesses closed and these contractors are dealing with incredibly lean times. So when we were, our, our charter that drives it all the way, we initially we wanted to be the number one software for residential contractors. Now our vision 
put forth by our founders is we want to be the operating software of the trades. So any contractor that works in service jobs would be using it. So that drove this release. And, you know, the handshake that's decided is that's the vision. And that's what ultimately is going to be our long-term plan. But when you do a, a, an analysis survey of the times, you figure out that for these individuals, if we're going to, to be successful in a new vertical, we have to put our best foot forward for their needs. So we made the decision on our new team that we were only going to sell our core platform. And even in the time of COVID-19 in our first month on a short sales month entering a new market, we hit our number just doubling down on the value of the core platform. Fantastic. And there'll be the option down line to try to sell more products later. But for right now, you have to prioritize whatever decisions you're going to make based on what your customers can actually receive an action on. And that's how we decided to do it. So the handshake turned out. And, uh, you know, as long as you're always driven by, we, I, we call them charters at ServiceLine. If you have a charter and there is a vision and there is an end goal, then you can make the agile decisions to pivot your approach a little bit as long as the success metrics are in play. And I think that's something that, you've pointed out a few times in this conversation when you do make a decision you have to have good metrics and good data in place to decide what is good or what is bad right and to that point my personal philosophy in life is it's totally okay to make mistakes uh, but at least let's do ourselves the courtesy of measuring them learning from them and then pivoting and adjusting and kind of taking those snapshots quickly enough that those mistakes don't become habits uh, I guess, but just become part of the go-to-market curve of of learning through uh, learning through 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 the data as much as anything else. But uh, yeah, I definitely feel aligned with what you're saying there. I think my last question, by the way, your answers have been fantastic. Um, I've learned a lot from you, um, and I'm sure others will too as they tune into this. My last question is, you know, what impact do you think um, your your favorite soccer team has had on your intelligence as a revenue operations leader. Tell me a little bit about, about that. Unfortunately, I don't think there's a single, a single listener out there that would say that me optionally deciding to root for Manchester United has had a positive impact on any part of my life. And certainly not my hair. I honestly looked on Google today and there was definitely a correlation between intelligence and supporting that team. Well, if you say so, maybe, maybe, <laughs> maybe your dad is different than mine. Uh, <laughs> I'll tell you what, it's, I'll, I'll give you, a, I'll give you a, a good football story to end on. Uh, so a different kind of United in uh, America, we have major league soccer and I'm from Atlanta, Georgia originally and Atlanta United football club was uh, an expansion franchise right before I moved out to Los Angeles. And, you know, in Major League Soccer, you've got LA Galaxy, you've got DC United, and that's really it. I, 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 maybe the Portland Timbers and the Seattle Sounders could be lumped up into that conversation, but you have these legacy teams. And if you know the, uh, the dated strategy to win an MLS, it's wait for David Beckham, to not be equitable for Real Madrid anymore and sign them. You know, it's kind of a retirement tour for the, the Manchester United Legends crowd. Well, Atlanta United actually built their entire program around 
bringing in a tech, a good technical director that built a good infrastructure and the result, you know, we live in this instant gratification world, right? And, uh, building their entire team around data that would suggest that the legacy model was wrong, that you shouldn't build a team around a bunch of soon to be retirees going off to pasture that want to live in America for a bit, build it a minor league program where good young players can come in and then find contracts out with big clubs in Europe. That was the method. They actually won the championship their second year wow. as a team. So the key takeaway is that, you know, good business infrastructure and having a vision and building things that can scale is always the best way. Billy, you've literally managed to tie together MLS plus revenue operations. And I take my hat off to you. If I was wearing one right now, well done. That was exactly what I was hoping to do when I came on the pod with you today. Kalakavod, that was uh, that was fantastic. Well done. It's been a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much. I know this won't be the last time that uh, that, that we have a, an interview like this. It's been great to to learn with you, learn from you, uh, and I can only anticipate that you're going to have more good news stories to share six months down the road from now as as things continue to go from strength to strength for for you and, and your team. Thank you so much. Yeah, Gideon. Thanks for having me.